to answer your question, I think getting people's stories, understanding people's stories is the pathway to social justice. Welcome to the My Colorful Nana Project, a collab with a Saluka company. I'm here with Chidia Saluka, and I pronounced your name correctly. That is correct. That is awesome. Correct. And we're so excited. And I just also want to mention that this episode is created in partnership with Breakthrough. Awesome. Um, yeah. As mentioned, I am Chidia Saluka. Um, I am an educator. I've been educating for the, the last 15 years. I'm currently a dean um, at the Horace Mann School in the Bronx, um, and I'm also the founder of Oscar Company, which is a, uh, a burgeoning uh, consulting firm that is trying to build more community school learning partnerships. Uh, he, him, his is my pronouns. Uh, I am black. Um, um, I'm Nigerian. Uh, 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 I guess that's, that is my heritage. Uh, my parents were born in Nigeria. I was born in this country, but I very much identify as a Nigerian man. Um, I am 36, and uh, I will be 37 next week. So, Ooh, happy birthday. Thank you. Crazy. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, so, Chidi, if you could tell me a little bit. I know we, we, we talked like uh, two weeks ago or yeah. so, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. I would love to just hear more about why you came into teaching and then how that shifted towards um, creating this company. Yeah. So I even loved how you broke it up into chapters. Yeah. And even yeah. just diving into that would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I said it was, uh, it was like a three act response. Um, <laughs> and, and the first act, uh, definitely being educator was not in the cards. It's not anything that was interesting to me. Even though I wrote poetry, I loved reading I love stories, all of that. Um, career-wise, I, I thought I was going to be a, I don't know, I don't know, a banker or something. Um, and, so, uh, and so the first act is that, but always the back of my mind thinking, I'm going to do something special, but I just didn't know what that thing was. Um, the second act is uh, college where... I majored in English, um, but still uh, not something, didn't think education was the pathway. Um, But I interned, I got a scholarship um, by MBNA America Bank, and I went to the interview. I thought I was a shoo-in. They were asking all types of questions about the bank. I knew it, our stock price, uh, what's the retail residual finance charge. I knew that. Who, where are all our offices? You know, uh, who runs the you know finance department at in Camden? I knew that, uh, so I'm thinking I got this. You know, where my you know suit I saved all my money for. I was excited to make a lot of money, frankly. Um, um, and then the last question she asked me was, uh, "What will bring you the most happiness? Uh, being here at the bank and helping to lead us to record growth, growth." or uh, designing a course that could potentially change the world. Um, uh, That question was so left field for me, Uh, but I was at an interview for the bank. So I told her working here at the bank, but even though, again, back to act one, there was something in me that did not have language 
that was like pushing me to do something. I felt it even when I was answering the question of, of course, here at the bank. She thankfully said, I don't believe you. She told me to, <laughs> yeah, she told me, it's a true story. She told me, I don't believe, yeah. I don't believe you. Uh, I need you. I need you was the word she said. I need you to apply to be a teacher. I think that you should be a teacher. And that was the first time that I heard someone say that. And it appalled me, honestly, like, excuse me, I'm, I'm, this is the job I'm supposed to be doing. Yes. And I went back to my dorm and I cried I'm, and I, because all of my roommates were getting these fancy jobs and job offers. And, you know, at the time it was like, you know, people are making thirty, forty thousand dollars out of out of college. And I, I was like, man, they're rich and I'm going to be broke. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I really, you know, that's where my mindset was. And um, but I said, all right. I'm going to apply to wherever and I'm going to hate it and I'll call her back. Because she told me, if you do hate it, call me back. This job is yours. So I said, okay, all right, all right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, long story short, I, I, I interviewed, it was my second interview at a nonprofit organization, Prep for Prep, which I'm sure some people, if not all of you, especially in the New York area, should know mm-hmm. uh, Prep. But Prep prepares... Um, really bright students of color for the best schools in the country. Uh, so um, I, I, I interviewed there. She told me, this is the director of the uh, student placement, boarding school placement. And she told me the, that um, education is a civil rights fight of our time. And uh, that we are working to put prep out of business. And I was like, and that shifted um, my framework of education. It, I always thought that education was like a monopoly game where you just had to find the right strategy to win. Um, I was trying to get better grades than the person in front of me. That, that you know, I, I enjoyed learning, but a lot of it felt like a video game. And um, so when she so I have said- a quick question for Yeah, you. yeah, so please, 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 you. please. But when you heard that, you know, so the civil education, the civil rights movement of our time, mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that was when we first talked and you said that that was one of the most amazing things that hit me that you yeah. said. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now, like thinking about it over a course of two weeks with yeah. some time. Right. Yeah. Education is also often seen as a privilege. So yeah. when you say education is a civil rights movement of our time, yeah. but a certain kind of education is only offered to certain people. Yeah. How can we talk about those topics hand in hand? Education being a privilege. Mm hmm. People or say do you that? think it is a privilege? Oh man. Well, I believe uh, I believe education is the the weapon. Weapon is a strong word, but it, I think it is the it is the primary vehicle that we learn ourselves and the world around us. With without it, without it, I think that we are living a not fully formed or fully realized life. There is an education that's happening behind the classroom that is pivotal to us understanding who we are. So if we see, if we've always thought, for example, like me, I uh, this may be hard to believe, but incredibly shy back in high school to see other to see other shy people, it gave me the. There is something about watching that that said, okay. I'm not weird. I'm not weird. I am not um, 
too much of an outlier or watching someone like, you know, I'm going to put his name out there, Levy Brooks, who was a major inspiration to me and how he was just so certain, was seemingly so certain about what he wanted and so clear in his um, communication and such a strong voice. I looked at that and I said, I need to, that gave me the blueprint to figure out my own self. And so without that, that, that institution of education, I don't know where I would be today. This is why I think it's a civil rights movement of our time. It's unfortunate that the ways that certain schools are set up does not organically um, allow for that kind of growth. Um, b- being pigeonholed um, to, okay, this is controversial, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> being <laughs> pig- but being pigeonholed by standardized tests and which which is fine, but then stifles the growth of creativity of our educators. I think puts our students at a tremendous disadvantage, um, and 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 I think there's there are moments that we're missing that allows for growth. We could do more experimental things. Now I say this not having any. I have no idea what people are doing in certain schools. I only know from my experience. But um, so anyway, I think education is a right. I think that everyone should, I don't think it should be like a luxury item. I think that everyone should have access to that kind of growth. I think that's how we become a better nation. I agree with you. Or well, nation, how how we become better people is uh, and, and maximize <laughs> our true potential. I mean, great, the nation gets good, but I'm more worried about are are you happy? <laughs> like, are you yeah. are you fulfilling what you um, that is the gifts that are inside of you? Are you? And I think education, that space, either traditional in the classroom or just maybe even homeschooling. I think the idea of education in general opens us us up to the true manifestation of our ourselves. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Perfect. So yeah. I interrupted you. We were on to act three. Oh, yeah, man. So act three, <laughs> act three, uh, uh, this is fun to be on this side of the question asking. Yeah. Uh, act three, I went to grad school, to when I, went, when I went to grad school to pay for grad school, I had to teach um, English 101 at Rutgers University. And that's where I fell in love with teaching. I was like, I, this is what I want to be doing. I wanted to facilitate really um, profound conversations. What I saw was my gift was that I could take a piece of literature and it, it's a, it became a moment where the literature became the vehicle for them to investigate themselves. I realized that that's what I'm good at. I can, and so the, our, our classes were no longer English classes. They felt, it just felt like a deep introspective um, boot camp. <laughs> and I love awesome. that. I love the fact that every 45 minutes I had kids saying, reflecting on their, their mom or like their upbringing or where they grew up. And I just loved that I was the one facilitating that. And that began my career. But then, um, but then I started to think about the thing the woman said at the bank about the class that's going to change, you know. And I wasn't fulfilling that. And I was very down that I was not doing more. And so I became very depressed that maybe I'm not in the right job because I feel like I'm not my full self. And I wanted to quit. I called Levy again. I, he, he comes back in the story. I called <laughs> Levy because I find him to be um, 
the man. And so I called him and I, he was worse for Goldman Sachs. And I was like, listen, man, I, I, I want, I want to, I, can I do what you do? I will intern under you. I, I will do whatever possible because I'm not fulfilling everything in me. Um, and I'm like going off, like, I can't do this. I'm going to quit. Da, da, da. And he was like, Chitty, that like, there is no other person that I know that should be doing their job than you. Like you are in mm-hmm. the right place. But he told me that I needed, this is going to answer your question now about the company. You needed to, you need to make this job your own. You can't do the job they gave you. And so when he told me that, that changed everything. I created my own course called the New Community Project, um, which again is just us trying to leverage traditional education to be of service to our communities. I traveled the country talking about that course. Um, there was tremendous um, uh, excitement about the possibility of bringing this course to their school. I needed the container to, to do that work. So I created Oscar Company because I wanted uh, to travel to different schools and make sure that I'm, I wasn't giving it away for free. Um, and that's the company. <laughs> Which is important. <laughs> True. It's real. So that's it. That's it. Um, um, I, I, I'm, curious, um, I'm curious about, that got me thinking about your journey. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why, why can't you just, you know, you're, you're done from college, just get a job. Like, why are you... <laughs> Why do you want to travel and, and, and go to, you know, uh, uh, where are you going to Senegal and, and, and <laughs> talk to people? And I don't know. Why are you doing that? Get a job. No, <laughs> that's actually really funny. Yeah. So no one's ever asked me, like, I know, I know you're joking, but it's funny to hear it like, in that way. Um, I think I just know, like, when you had your bank interview moment, mm-hmm. when your interviewer said, you know, why? Like, would you rather do this or this? And like one was like very empathic, very emotionally driven. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was more like, you know, just do you want to do this thing? Like you asked, like, why don't you just get a job? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think I asked myself that question um, when I was 16. Mm-hmm. And I asked it because, well, actually because of school. I was in a program called Life School that was very untraditional, mm-hmm. similarly to what you were describing, how you go on these adventures. Mm-hmm. And you really think about yourself. And I had at least five teachers who were just like you, who were very invested in, you know, talking about your mom in their classroom, mm-hmm. talking about your struggles in mm-hmm. the classroom. Mm-hmm. And that was more exciting to me than any, you know, corporate job or traditional path could provide me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, after I made that realization, then choosing to go to a college like Gallatin um, at NYU, where I can create my own major, mm-hmm. and then choosing to run with that and then quit collegiate sports and really just focus in on my art, and then realizing that, okay, like I have more time to think about social advocacy, mm-hmm. and which is no, again, no shade on like people yeah. who play sports. Like, yeah, that, no was, yeah. that was just not for me, yeah. right? Um, for that whole time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So giving me more time to think about social advocacy, how can I make myself of benefit to other people than myself? Like that's something that was entirely more joyful mm-hmm. than thinking about, you know, ways to make money, which right. again is not fault on anyone's no, part. No. It just didn't fulfill me. Oh, okay. I guess the question is what are you running toward? Like what do you do you have an idea? I mean, you're so young. I'm just curious if you're like, I know the North Star, or is it just like you're feeling out your way? And why this podcast? Why did you start a podcast? 
Yeah, so this podcast, I always start smiling when someone asks me. But um, I started the My Colorful Nana project, which is now My Colorful Nana. Um, in the spring of 2018, I remember seeing this picture of my grandmother, um, which I have right here. This is my My Colorful Nana notebook that you can see. Nice, <laughs> nice. Um, so I saw this picture of her, the original one in California. And I was digging through some boxes. And I found this picture of her who had this like glowing smile, this huge afro, and she was um, a single black woman, lost her husband to the war and raised my father um, up until he was 18. And there's just so much story and nuance. And I just right. fell in love with the idea. So it solely started as a project that focused on black hair. And then I fell in love with the idea of, you know, just black hair and the aspect of oppression that comes with it. Right. So that's when I started taking more classes revolving around blackness, um, but also with this post-colonial theory perspective mm -hmm. um, that allowed my creativity and arts to come through with the podcast um, and various articles that I've really just enjoyed writing. Nice. So I have a question for you. All right. The question yep. is, we haven't always had the black male perspective, right? On this and podcast. That has always been on my mind. It's something that I wanted to, you know, complete, okay. quote unquote. Okay. Um, we've had, you know, a non-binary person. We've had female, male, white, black, Hispanic, like all everything in between. But I really, really, really am interested in knowing about your relationship to your hair mm. as a black male. That's so funny. I was just talking to my wife about this yesterday because I grew up in the 90s where if you had any hair in your head, it was like, oh, your hair nappy. Like you got to, we had to cut our hair seemingly every three days because we could, it was, it was uh, unkept to have hair, black boys on our head. Penny Hardaway kept his hair short. Now, when he was in Memphis State, he had a flat top, but then he came to the NBA, he had a fade. Um, and I just wanted my hair like that. Like, I wanted to keep cutting my hair as low as possible. Then I got a Caesar, um, you know, and it wasn't until, oh, this is really funny. So that's my life. I was cutting my hair, cutting my hair. If you look at all of my um, photos, um, from ever, I never had any inch of hair like I have now where I'm like growing it the way I'm growing it. Um, and it, it, funny enough, and I don't think, I don't think I've ever shared this story um, to anyone beside my wife, but I was dating someone, uh, 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 this is post um, college. I want to say it was 2006, seven. Um, anyway, uh, she said, we got in an argument. She was like, I don't understand why you keep cutting your hair like this. It's unnatural. Okay, I have to ask. I know you might be, <laughs> is she white? Come no, on. <laughs> no, she wasn't white, but she wasn't white. She wasn't white. If I tell you, it's, it's the mix is so, it's just, you never heard anyone that's mixed before. So if I say it, it's going to be like, she's, he's talking about her, but whatever. <laughs> All right. Anyway, whatever. I, I, whatever. And actually, this is a good story. This is a good story for you. So here it is. So anyway, we had an argument because she was like, it's so unnatural. It's so unnatural. You keep cutting your hair like this. And I was like, oh, this is why I need to date a black woman. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Like, this is what we do. We cut our hair. Yeah. And she was like, the hairline, like there's, that's not a natural line on your head. I was like, oh my what? God. Yeah. Yes. This is a true story. But it's funny. I, 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 now that I'm older, 
the idea that we felt this tremendous need to continually cut our hair. We can't see our hair. We can't see our hair. We can't see our hair. Like, oh my God, I can see my hair. Cut it, cut it off, cut it off, cut it off. I was like, why were we like that? Like, you know, now I'm like, I wish, I wish I grew my hair out more because I love my hair. Like I, I love, I love uh, just growing it out. And I love, I love it. And Jay-Z has when I look at Jay Z, the fact that he's able to grow that hair at fifty years old, I'm like, you are the man. Like, like how did he do that? <laughs> like, how did he do that? So, um, so my so it's interesting because I never really thought about my hair until now. I'm in my you know my late thirties, and people are always like, wow, your hair, you still have your hair. I'm like, yeah, you know, like, um, but it it has made me revisit that woman's um, that argument. And even though it's still crazy to say a hairline's unnatural, but but there is something to what she was saying. This idea that she was just basically saying, I don't understand this need to constantly cut off the top of your hair. And now nowadays, I teach a lot of young black boys now, and everyone's growing their hair. Everyone's got the waves, or you know, people wearing their hair, like doing a little scrunchy thing. Like so, yeah. it, it has texture. Yeah, like yeah. that was not the thing in the nineties. Like and it's 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 funny because the the high top fade was like the eighties, and for some reason the nineties we were like no, no hair, mm-hmm. and I wonder where did that come from because you know we grew up with Will Smith and all of them we always had their hair out. But what what were we doing in the nineties that made us like no? I don't know. Curious. It's really interesting. Like even to seeing my um. My, my my brother's relationship to his hair versus my own. Yeah. Um, and we grew up in the same community. So we grew up in Chappaqua, New York, in Westchester. Oh, wow. What was that yeah. like? Tell me more about that. What was Chappaqua like? <laughs> uh, they're trade-offs. So like my mom would say, you know, she knows I do this work, obviously, but she's like, right. well, stop, stop, stop shooting on Chappaqua. Yeah. Half joking, <laughs> half being, you know, she's like, yeah. we, we, we did all these things to like raise you here. We commuted from the city to like give you this education. Yeah. You know, would you be where you are if you didn't go to Chappaqua? You know, there's so many things that mm. it gave to you. Mm. You know, she is very, you know, uh, receptive of the things that were difficult. Yeah. But she's like, you know, like I made trade-offs, you know, like she asked, mm-hmm. she asked me often. She's like, would you rather us raise you in a place like Mount Vernon or New Rochelle, where there are more people who look like you? Right. And perhaps you wouldn't have been given the same opportunities. Or would you have been rather been raised in a place like Chappaqua, where there's really no one that looks like you, but you were given these select opportunities which is, again, why I sometimes say education is a privilege or a certain kind Let's talk of about education. this. Let's talk about that. Tell me why, okay. why yes. do you think it's a privilege? I think a certain kind of education is a privilege. Uh, yes, that's true. I think that okay. you are afforded. Okay. okay. Yes. Uh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I didn't mean to grand scheme it. Right? No, no, no. That, I agree with you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go you ahead. know, like I do think that you are afforded certain opportunities if you grow up in a certain a socioeconomic community. And then the fact that I was able to go to NYU, the fact that I was able to go to Gallatin, um, that's a privilege. And that's a privilege that I have to recognize, right? And that's something that I try to be very clear about whenever I talk to people about where they want to go to school or, or how I got to where I am, right? And I feel like that's also where my interest for like advocacy comes from, where it's like, well, I want everyone to have these opportunities and experiences. And now it's just a matter of, okay, well, how do we get there? Yeah. Um, and that's and I feel like that's what we're both we're both very interested in and passionate mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am very you know straightforward and clear about like I got this because I was given this mm-hmm. from the womb. It had nothing to do with me being Correct. born. Correct. It was just what I was given. Yes, I would say I agree with you. The thing that I would say is that 
the privilege comes in you having the means and the opportunity to go to NYU. I wouldn't say NYU is a privilege. This is what I mean. This is what I mean. Mm. There are, I taught at a charter school in Newark and uh, my first year. And there are a bunch of kids there who could easily get into NYU. Inherent in the culture of black folks is an incredible storytelling tradition, an incredible um, um, vibrancy and hustle just because we have to have it. These are things that will easily get you into a school like NYU. The challenge is that because of uh, uh, generational um, wealth gaps that continue to expand, places like NYU seem out of reach for, for th- these kids. So I would say that the, it's a shame when I say education is a civil rights movement of our time, it's because, because of, the, because of a, a generational wealth gap, because we have schools that are inequipped to leverage the innate skill set of black folks an incredible storytelling tradition. We 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 tell we the, the dominant language often in schools. Not saying I don't know if like that now, but when I was teaching was you are not as talented as your peers in Livingston. Uh, these are suburbs, uh, South Orange. You're not that. You, so we got to figure out a way to close the gap. And there's truth to that. But the the danger of that language suggests that you yourself are not in the same league as them. And I would argue, no, they are not. They are they have the skill set, the 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 institutional brilliance to compete with anyone. <laughs> anyone. The problem is that when you don't have money, when you have generations of not having money, it does something to your brain that makes you believe that I can't be in the room with them. And that's the, that's the part that bothers me. It's like, if you only knew, I've taught, I've now I'm teaching at one of the best schools in the country. I also taught in, in a school in the inner city. I'm here, here's, another, here's another hot take. I don't see a difference. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. Yes. What happens is the kids that I teach have uh, generational knowledge. Take, take money out of it. Knowledge that says, they can look to their grandfather, their great-grandfather who've made it. And that's powerful when you can see generations of people making it. When you, the problem where I grew up is that we lack those role models. And because we lack those role models, is we can start to believe that it is not possible to be in the same spaces as the kids I teach now. And what I want to do is even this playing field or to rewire the mind state of the kids I grew up with and neighborhoods I grew up in. All I'm saying is this, that there is, there is wealth, wealth in our culture. And it's unfortunate that, that for some reason, there are kids growing up today saying, I, don't, I, I, can't, I, I can't make it. Like, and it's like, but you're in this culture. You know? So that to me, yes. we got to figure that piece out. And that's when I say education civil rights movement, it's that piece. How can we liberate the minds of uh, of, of young people. I'm going to even expand it, not only black folks, because I know there's poor white folks who believe they can't have it either. So that's, that's interesting too. Um, mm-hmm. How can we take young people who grew up in generations of poverty, uh, make them believe that you can leverage the innate abilities of, of your own family, your own culture, to put you in a position where you can go to NYU? My last question, my last question. All right. But we ask <laughs> right. everyone that I interview. Um, oh, yes, cool. 
What do you think is the importance of the My Call from Nana project and having conversations like this one? Uh, because, great question. Oh, man, this may be one of those tangents, but I'm going to try my best because this is something <laughs> that I'm really, really, really passionate about. Um, uh, so f- I'll say this. So for your listeners, uh, I teach English. Uh, I teach, uh, and five years ago, because... I was I hit a wall. I needed to create my own course, um, so I created a course called the New Community Project. And the New Community Project says, "What if we read our neighbors and our local community the same way we read Shakespeare, Toni Morrison, The Titans?" I wondered. This is a thought experiment that maybe we would have a deeper understanding of why our neighborhood leans in one way, uh, doesn't lean the other way because we're looking at it through the lens of our brain and not through the lens of pity. Anyway, so the answer to your question is, I believe in what's happening with Newcom, what makes Newcom so special is that we are unlocking human stories. And when you unlock human stories, it becomes really hard to other them Mm. because othering happens I even banned the word back when I started teaching. I said, we will no longer say that's weird, like ever in the class. Because I can go into your household and see how y'all doing stuff and be like, that's weird. And you would hate that. You would hate like, I'm like, Mm. wait, you guys don't eat at the table at 8 p.m.? My family does. That's weird. (laughs) You know, it's not weird. It's that's just the the, the culture of that people. I'll, I'll end here. One of my major dreams is creating summer programs where young people go to middle America. Like, I want to create a program where for a summer, you spent a whole summer in East Lansing, Michigan. <laughs> and you learn about what is this town about? Like, what are the community, what are people worried about at dinner? Like, what are some of the big social problems that they face? What's the asset of East Lansing that no one knows about? Like, what's the food that everyone's eating in East Lansing? Um, and really do a deep dive into the community norms so that people who live in these big cities get to understand what's happening in these places that we don't think about. To answer your question, I think getting people's stories, understanding people's stories is the pathway to social justice. I love that. Yeah, I believe that. Oh, this is, I'm fired up now. Now I want to like yeah, do something. Time to save the world. Let's go. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Anyway, I'm proud of you. I'm super proud of you. I'm so proud Thank of you. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. We got we to we gotta come to the, the, the table and we have to talk and listen to each other. And that's the only way. And so to see that you are, you're, you're, you've dedicated your life to getting these stories, um, I think is, it is. It's just the way we're going to change this nation and the way we're going to change this world. 